Hey everyone, you are watching The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. We're of course here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. So if you're tuning in for the first time, thank you for watching. If you've been here before, good to see you as always. Um, Real quick, I have to throw in my obligatory plea to please hit like and subscribe, especially if you're not subscribed to The Jacobin Channel already, please hit subscribe now because we're actually really close to getting 100,000 subscribers. And I think I mentioned this on the last show, apparently when we hit 100K subs, uh, our producer, Young Kale, actually gets a plaque in the mail. So let's get Kale that plaque. Uh, So for today's show, we are going to be joined by Lee Phillips a little later. He is a great uh, journalist who writes on science and climate. He's a contributor to Jacobin. And in particular, he wrote a piece recently called Blue Collars, Green Jobs, um, which I think is a very insightful and sobering look at why the ostensibly pro-labor, pro-working class climate movement is still sort of at odds with large segments of the labor movement itself, namely the building trades, which are vast and pretty powerful. Um, And, you know, you guys might recall that when the Green New Deal was first released by Senator Ed Markey and AOC, uh, the AFL-CIO and specifically Richard Trumka actually came out against the Green New Deal. So we're going to look into all of those issues. Uh, Lee makes what I think is a very compelling case that this kind of disjunct or this ongoing tension is not the result of, you know, certain unions, just reactionary or conservative views on climate. Uh, I I agree with him, and we're going to be diving into that a little more later. For my part, I'm going to be making some comments on the um, uh, good old American neoliberal tradition of socialism for the rich, which we saw a lot of during the pandemic. So I'm going to be looking at some of those policies and kind of unpacking what socialism for the rich really means and what we can do to move beyond it. Uh, But for now, um, given the escalating Russia-Ukraine conflict, uh, which has obviously been heating up quite a bit this week, I wanted to bring on Tony Wood to talk about that situation and talk a little bit about where that might lead. Uh, Tony, of course, is on the editorial board of the New Left Review. He's also the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, and also the book Chechnya, The Case for Independence. Tony, first of all, um, thanks for joining us. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Well, good to be here. So as I just mentioned, uh, obviously a lot happening in the news this week regarding sure. Russia and Ukraine. Um, of course, just just I think within the last 48 hours, uh, Putin accuses the U.S. of trying to drag Russia into uh, a, a war. Uh, and of course, we just saw that the, the U.S. has now deployed uh, troops not to the Ukraine, but to Eastern Europe um, as NATO reinforcements. So I, I think just to start, can you just briefly lay out um, what kind of got us to this present conflict and why particularly right now things seem to be reaching this boiling point? Mm-hmm. Sure, no problem. I mean, I think one thing that it's good to bear in mind in the background of all of this is that in eastern Ukraine itself, there has been a conflict simmering since 2014, uh, since uh, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. And then there was this kind of uh, separatist conflict in two provinces of eastern Ukraine. And that 
conflict has still been simmering there since 2014, pretty much continuously and still taking casualties. So a lot of this geopolitical wrangling that is happening over the heads of what is happening uh, to people in eastern Ukraine needs to be thought about. Um, In terms of tensions between Russia and the U.S., um, Russia's been obviously thinking about the U.S. exit from Afghanistan and looking at that and thinking this is a moment to try and redefine the security relationship with the U.S. So I think a lot of what is going on is Russia kind of seizing a moment when it thinks the West is slightly on the back foot to kind of renegotiate its relationship with NATO, which is, you know, it's Mm. been a consistent problem for the past, uh, I mean, really since the end of the Cold War, and we can get into the details of that a bit more later. Mm-hmm. But so what we've got is Russia seizing this moment to try and force a new set of arrangements. Um, and what has happened is that the West has really upped the tension rather than stepping back and negotiating. So that's why we see these additional arms shipments to Ukraine, uh, additional uh, arrival of troops from the US. And then you get, you know, the British Prime Minister flying into Kiev and saying that a Russian invasion is imminent. And now, just now today, I think, or yesterday, the Biden administration has started to also step back a little from that idea of an imminent Russian invasion. I think we saw Jen Mm -hmm. Psaki saying, oh, I only use the word imminent once and I'm now not going to use it. And that's partly because the Ukrainians are saying, wait a minute, please don't tell everyone World War III is going to start in our country. So there's a sort of weird disjuncture between this extremely high level of tension according to the U.S. media and that we're seeing in our reporting Mm. that those of us in the U.S. and U.K. consume. Um, But in Ukraine itself, they don't really think this is going to be a war and they would rather it wasn't depicted in that way and they don't really think it's imminent. So there's some something sort of amiss there that a lot of people seem to be assuming there isn't going to be no war, whereas from the Western media, we'd be thinking, you know, World War III is imminent. And I think we may be just in the next few days seeing the reporting and and the US diplomacy try and find different ways of stepping back from that brink um, unless we are going to see a dramatic escalation which we can get into that as well I think that's not likely but I wouldn't totally rule that out unfortunately I want to stay on the subject of kind of liberal or mainstream media misconceptions because um, you know as you pointed out there's 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 been a lot of chatter and um, I, I think one popular narrative that I've seen a lot is that the sort of mounting tensions between Russia and Ukraine are almost exclusively a product of Putin's particular brand of just like over the top authoritarian megalomania. And we actually have a clip from a video explainer that I think captures this sentiment quite well. Uh, this this is an explainer that uh, our producer Kale found that has something like over 2.5 million views. So let's take a look. Putin has constructed his own reality here, one in which Ukraine is actually being controlled by shadowy Western forces who are holding the people of Ukraine hostage. And if that he invades, it'll be a swift victory because Ukrainians will accept him with open arms, the great liberator. Like this guy's a total romantic. He's a history buff and a romantic, and he has a hill to die on here and it is liberating the people who have been taken from the Russian motherland. Kind of like the abusive boyfriend who's like, she actually really loves me, but it's her annoying friends who are planting all these ideas in her head. That's why she broke up with me. And it's like, no, dude, she's she's over you. All right, so Putin as the abusive boyfriend, um, is this an adequate framework for understanding what's happening? Or um, maybe a better way of putting the question is, how, how can we how should we actually think about the conflict and specifically Putin's role within it? Yeah, I think I mean, so, yeah, quick answer. No, that's useless uh, <laughs> and insane and silly. 
Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of things here that I would pick out. One is that um, there is this tendency relentlessly in Western coverage to psychologize Russia and psychologize Putin. And so to make this all about his personal motivations, what does he want? What does he think? What are his emotional responses about this or that historical event or whatever geopolitical situation? And I mean, the grain of truth in that is that Russia is, it is a very centralized system and it is a very personalized mechanism of power that has been built around Putin. So the person at the center of that, yes, the personality is important. Um, But if anything, actually, I think a lot of those psychological indicators point in the opposite direction. He's extremely cautious, Putin, prone to then suddenly quite risky behavior out of the blue. But generally speaking, he's quite cautious and calculating Um, And he's also, so far as we've seen, um, what I would call a legitimist, like he always needs a good legal justification for the thing he is going to do, even if it is actually an aggressive act, um, like the seizure of Crimea, he had a kind of scrupulously worked out justification of that, that he rolled out to the Russian people in advance and then did it. Um, And similarly, with the extension of his presidential term, he was very scrupulous about getting that through you know, constitutional amendments. He didn't just say, hell with it, I want to stay, right? So I think in terms of the psychology, he is not (laughs) the abusive boyfriend. He is a canny (laughs) politician, right? Who is not responsive to whatever corporate interests or whatever crazy backers that, you know, we have in our wonderful democracies in the West. So he is responsive to different interests. Um, So the psychology does matter to some degree. Mm -hmm. However, however, what really matters a lot more is the geopolitical context. And actually a good um, friend of mine and colleague who writes very knowledgeably about Russia, Keith Gessen, put this very well. He wrote a good op-ed several years ago called What Would a Good Putin Do? So imagine you could take away all of the mean Putin attributes, like make him a really nice person who was really you know, pro-Western. What would that person in charge of this exact country have done in the same period. And the point is that, you know, it's a useful kind of popular way of thinking about this idea that actually this is a country that has a set of interests that any given leader will try and defend. Um, and I think, again, we can get into the history of that if, if there's time, if we want to, but I think after the end of the Cold War, a lot of Western establishments, foreign policy thinkers and leaderships got very used to the idea of a Russia that didn't have interests of its own separate from those of the West, Mm. right? They thought, Mm -hmm. oh, well, Russia's West, they're just our interests and they'll do what we say because obviously we've got the right idea and they want to belong in whatever we're doing. And as it Mm -hmm. turns out, that's just patently false. Russia does have its own interests. It took a while for Russia to work out what they were, but once it did, they were not, Uh, consonant with the interests of the West. And in fact, they were conflicting. And so my way of reading, I mean, and the current Ukraine crisis needs to really be seen in this longer framework that ever since the mid 2000s, really, we're talking from at least 2007 onwards, 2008, the the time when there was the war between Russia and Georgia, uh, really from then on, what we're seeing is a gradually mounting series of conflicts between Russia and the West, because these interests are actually opposed. And I don't think that has much to do with Putin himself personally. Mm -hmm. 
I actually want to follow that up with a quote from your book, Russia Without Putin, um, which I I think this is a really interesting quote. So you write, for much of the post-Soviet era, the Russian elite, Putin very much included, were committed to an ideal of alliance or even integration with the West. Over time, however, it became increasingly clear that this was a one-sided fantasy and Russia's elite gradually abandoned it, swapping dreams of integration for a more strident defense of Russian interests. So as you were saying, Um, and I, I think that this is really interesting because it kind of goes against the grain of like the popular or the mainstream conception of Russia as like this existential enemy of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk about this quote a little, like mm-hmm. like explain what you mean here. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a thing that is often forgotten, but obviously because Putin has been around for so long and he is this dominant figure, but he has been around through a lot of changes in Russia and in Russia's attitudes to the West. And, and so, for example, when Putin became prime minister of Russia in 1999, uh, Bill Clinton was still president of the US. Um, in early 2000, uh, Putin became president of Russia at that point, And Clinton was on a visit to Russia, I think, um, on his way out as president, of course. And at that moment in the year 2000, Putin asked if Russia could join NATO. Okay. And so at that point, Putin, as the representative of the Russian state thought, yes, we'll join NATO. That's a good idea. Um, and that, uh, Clinton, I believe at that point, I mean, there's various verbatim records given by diplomats, but no official source for this. But supposedly Clinton said that he personally would not be against it, but personally didn't mean anything for an outgoing U.S. president. Right. And so since then, mm-hmm. that is a wish that has not come true. But I think the, the the thing sort of behind that to think about is what is it that the Russian state wants to do? And in 1999-2000, it looked rational to, for them to join NATO. Over time, they realized mm-hmm. actually belonging to NATO, that's not going to work. They're not going to welcome us in. They don't want us in there because having Russia in NATO destabilizes the whole alliance. It doesn't, Russia's too big. It has too much weight militarily. There's all kinds of reasons why it wouldn't fit. And I think they realized, oh, that that whole idea was a delusion. A delusion encouraged, one should say, by Western powers in the 1990s who gave Russia this whole parallel track, right? They said, yes, let's, let's have ongoing conversations about security. Um, And I think the other thing to think about here is the Russians are very aware of this history. So Putin, you know, he's not just rattling a saber and saying, I want to invade, I want to invade like the abusive boyfriend. He's actually saying, look, we talked about X in 2006. We talked about Y in 2010 at a conference of the OSCE in Astana in Kazakhstan. And we made these agreements to talk about these things and let's talk about them again. I mean, and again, this is not to paint him as some sort of extremely reasonable person. It's not a positive assessment I'm giving. It's more just that the Russians have a kind of clear idea of what the history is that they're reacting to. um, That is really, for them, a story of disappointment. So it's not a history Mm -hmm. of permanent animosity so much as one of they've been disappointed by how things have gone. um, And so they now want to reshape the story, basically. I want to step backward just a little bit uh, to talk about NATO, because I I think in many ways it kind of seems like this mysterious Cold War War holdover, right? Um, But obviously, uh, as you just alluded to, it is sort of this central player, especially as we're seeing now in the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict. So, like, what exactly is NATO and why has there been this, like, ongoing push to expand NATO since the 90s? It's a very good question. I mean, I think... You know, the origins of NATO that comes out of the aftermath of World War II and is very much a Cold War formation, right? It's designed to extend the U.S. uh, security umbrella, right, over Western Europe at the time. Um, 
and to sort of forge that alliance against the Soviet Union and its satellite states in Eastern Europe. And it's very clearly a military alliance formed for the purpose of opposing the Soviet Union. Uh, Once the Mm -hmm. Soviet Union collapses in 1991, there is a question of what is NATO for? If the the object it was designed to face off against doesn't exist, what is it for? And at that point, there are a lot of people, including actually conservative figures in the US foreign policy establishment. So it was not a kind of uh, a, a progressive cause per se, actually. A lot of people said, well, great, now we've won the Cold War, as they thought. Uh, well, let's just disband NATO. There's no point in it anymore. Um, but instead, what happened was NATO actually expanded eastward because I think for a lot of people, this was an opportunity too good to miss, that they thought, and actually it's revealing going back over this history, as I did for, for writing my book, that actually there were people who thought mm-hmm. Russia is down and out seemingly for now, but it'll be back eventually. And we will need to have uh, shored up our defenses again by the time that happens. So while Russia is weak, definitely let's expand NATO. Definitely don't get rid of it. Let's push, push, push eastward. So at that point, what you have is NATO uh, expanding eastward. And in fact, you know, it's a sort of interesting feature of European history that NATO expands eastward and the EU follows, right? The first you get the military alliance lined up. And then after that comes the uh, the European sort of economic community, the uh, all of the EU kind of uh, legislative and kind of regulatory architecture and the economy and all of this stuff. Um, yeah, so, so essentially at this point, Russia is just watching this expansion of NATO creeping towards its borders. Um, they don't mm-hmm. like it. But again, the story of the past 30 years has been that Russia is really not in a position to stop it from happening. Um, and mm-hmm. so one can see a lot of the uh, apparent aggression of Russia's moves, such as like, you know, moving all these troops to the Ukrainian border. That's sort of what they have in their arsenal in terms of getting the attention of the West and trying to persuade the rest excuse me, persuade the West to stop what it's doing, right? That's mm-hmm. that's what they've got. Right. Diplomacy has not worked. So um, I think this will be our last question for you. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes back to something that you hinted at when you answered the first question. But I, I wonder, do, do you see that, do you see a peaceful way that this conflict can be resolved? And specifically, you know, for the citizens of Russia, Ukraine, and like, other countries in Eastern Europe and in the US, what is the most ideal outcome? Like putting mm-hmm. aside Putin and other, you know, heads of state for average citizens, what is the ideal outcome? Yeah, this is a tricky one because I think in a way the events of the past several years have actually made the ideal outcome very difficult, if not impossible. Um, I think many, yeah. many years ago, certainly before the annexation of Crimea, what a lot of people were talking about is a neutrality agreement. So make Ukraine officially neutral. Um, And this is what happened during the Cold War, for example, with Austria. And I believe Austria is still not part of NATO. It's like slap bang in the middle of Europe. But at the time, it was right up against the Iron Curtain. And the idea was, have those states be neutral as a kind of buffer zone. That would have been a good idea for Ukraine, I think. But the problem with uh, Putin annexing Crimea and putting all these troops there is that now there are majorities in Ukraine in favor of joining NATO because they definitely think they need that. So I think the the difficulty is there's an, it's hard to see realistically what are the options on the table from any of the players that will allow a climb down. And that's why I think, even though I don't think anyone it's in anyone's interest to escalate this and have a real war, all of the players have kind of cornered themselves. They haven't really got a good way to climb down. I think Putin needs something he can go home with and say, see, we've got the West's agreement to stall on NATO expansion. And that if he can dress it up as a victory, he'll withdraw the troops and that will be fine. But if the Biden administration keeps actually 
you know, foot on the pedal and increases arms shipments and ups the rhetoric, then that pushes Putin to actually try and do something militarily. So I think it's going to be very hard to de-escalate, but some kind of diplomatic solution will have to be fudged out of this somehow. All right. So again, Tony Wood is the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, and also Chechnya, The Case for Independence. Tony, thank you so much for your time. Good to see you. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So again, we have Lee Phillips coming up. I will also be making some comments about socialism for the rich. But first, uh, we have a message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months. And if you join in February, you'll get these books. The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution by Nils Melsner, an exploration of the chilling precedent set by the illegal silencing of Julian Assange. How to Be a Revolutionary by South African writer C.A. Davids, an ambitious globe-spanning novel about what we owe our consciences. The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives by Adolf Reed Jr., a narrative account of Jim Crow as people experienced it. And Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life by Karen and Barbara Fields, a new edition of this celebrated contemporary work on race and racism. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Uh, all of those look great. Um, I actually was not expecting to see Adolf Reed's book or Racecraft, uh, but obviously here on this show, we love those books. Um, I, I can personally vouch for Adolf's book, The South. Um, it's it's really great. You should you should all check it out. And Racecraft, of course, um, I think lots of you are probably familiar with it. It looks like there's a new edition out. Uh, so those look great. Um, all right. So for my segment, as I said earlier, I want to talk about the American pastime of socialism for the rich and specifically um, how it's sort of played out during the pandemic. So when the child when the enhanced child tax credit expired back in December, that was basically the end of the government throwing a bone to working people during a catastrophic public health crisis and economic downturn. Over the course of the pandemic, more than 22 million people lost jobs in the first few months alone. Workers around the world lost an estimated $3.7 billion in earnings. Food insecurity spiked. And according to one poll, almost 20% of U.S. households lost their entire savings. And yet, from the start, Republicans and plenty of Democrats complained bitterly about having to slightly loosen the purse strings for the American public during a national emergency. Recall that Republicans fiercely opposed both stimulus checks and enhanced unemployment benefits. More recently, of course, Joe Manchin torpedoed Biden's spending bill in part because he claimed parents would spend their monthly child tax credit checks on drugs. Of course, none of these politicians had anything to say whatsoever about the massive upward transfer of wealth during the pandemic. We now know that billionaires made a combined $5 trillion during the pandemic, thanks mostly to the wild fluctuations of the stock market. Bernie Sanders, for his part, called for a one-time tax on this obscene amount of wealth, of course, to no avail. 
But also recall that the same CARES Act that contained the apparently controversial relief checks and supplemental unemployment benefits also contained tax breaks in the billions for real estate developers and other businesses and delivered a $25 billion bailout to the airline industry on the grounds that airlines wouldn't lay off or furlough their workers or use the money to buy back stocks. Spoiler, the airlines furloughed workers anyway. The same goes for the Paycheck Protection Program, which was theoretically supposed to supplement workers' incomes during the pandemic, but ended up being mostly a giveaway to the upper class. Recently, a group of researchers looked into how the program's money had been spent during the pandemic, and as lead author David Autor told the New York Times, quote, we tried to figure out where did the money go, and it turns out it didn't primarily go to workers who would have lost jobs. It went to shareholders and their creditors. The Times write-up continues, for every $1 in wages that the Paycheck Protection Program prevented from being lost, it handed out $3.13 that went somewhere else. 72, 72% of the program's relief money ended up in the hands of those whose household income is in America's top 20%, Dr. Autor's group found. So in other words, while policymakers on both sides of the aisle constantly nickel and dime working people when it comes to social spending, they have absolutely no problem at all shoveling money at businesses and the wealthy. This, of course, is what Bernie Sanders, by way of Martin Luther King Jr. and others, famously calls socialism for the rich. While we are on the subject of socialism for the rich, which my Republican friends have suddenly become very concerned about, let me talk about the Trump tax proposal that was pushed very hard by Senator McConnell and the Republican leadership and where I think every Republican voted for it. You want to talk about socialism for the rich? It is not the bill that puts $2,000 into working class hands all over this country. That ain't socialism for the rich. This is socialism for the rich in that bill. Amazon, oh, by the way, I must say this if I may, we were quoting the liberal Washington Post owned by Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest guy in the world. So here is Jeff Bezos's company, Amazon, and they received a tax rebate. They paid nothing in 2018 in federal taxes. That's a corrupt tax system to begin with. But then on top of that, they received a hundred and $29 million as a tax rebate. That, Senator Thune, is what socialism for the rich. In fact, this particular company is owned by the richest guy in the world. You gave him a $129 million rebate. So why exactly do politicians continue to give handouts and cut taxes for businesses and billionaires, a.k.a. practice socialism for the rich? Yes, part of it is that politicians, particularly those with ties to big business, are very often just greedy or corrupt. Former Representative Beto O'Rourke recently noted as much when he tried to slam Texas Governor Greg Abbott as a kind of corporate socialist for doling out favors to his friends in Texas. Beto tweeted, Abbott is a corrupt socialist. He encouraged his corporate buddies to make obscene profits during the grid failure and forced us to pay for their windfall in higher utility bills. He privatized the gains to a few and socialized the losses to every single ratepayer in Texas. So Beto has a point that whenever the government decides to subsidize the activities of businesses, it's middle and working class taxpayers who are inevitably left holding the bag for any risks and losses those businesses end up incurring. 
But the system of so-called socialism for the rich isn't only the product of cronyism or politicians scratching the backs of their corporate friends. It's literally what our current stage of capitalism requires. Under capitalism, politicians have a perpetual incentive to prioritize economic growth. So simply put, in order to stay in office, they generally have to be able to point to a healthy and growing economy. For most voters, a good economy means low unemployment and low inflation. And for businesses, it, of course, means increased profit. So when politicians can't deliver on those things, they risk losing their jobs, particularly because big businesses and wealthy individuals, who are the ones who are most invested in economic growth because they have the most to gain from it, hold disproportionate influence over our political system. So if policymakers essentially have to ensure economic growth to keep their jobs, how do they do it? In the post-war era, they did it with generous public spending and by heavily regulating business activity, which kept both wages and productivity high. The rate of economic growth during this period was, in fact, the fastest the U.S. has ever seen. Unfortunately, this era of turbocharged economic growth couldn't last forever, and once it began to slow down in the 1970s, big business saw an opportunity to push what we now call neoliberal restructuring or just trickle-down economics. In short, over the last 40 years, under the new regime of neoliberalism, policymakers have almost exclusively tried to stoke economic growth through massive tax cuts, breaking unions, deregulating the financial sector, and slashing the social safety net, all in the hopes that if these measures juice business profits, those same businesses might reinvest said profits in the economy by creating jobs, raising wages, and buying or producing goods, equipment, or technology that could theoretically increase labor productivity. However, as we now know, a curious thing happened. Even though corporations were increasingly relieved of high tax burdens and pesky unions and their profits started skyrocketing again, they did not reinvest those profits the way everyone said they would. Instead, they mostly funneled the money into massive CEO compensation packages and stock buybacks or just flat out offshored the profits. And as it happens, the effect of their refusal to invest has been sluggish GDP for the U.S. since the 1980s. So this graph here shows change over time. So yes, you can see there has been some economic growth over the last several decades, but the rate has been significantly slowing down over that time period. Now, all of this only got worse in the wake of the Great Recession. As the economist David Kotz put it, Since 2007, capitalists have largely failed to carry out their, quote, historical mission of using their profits to invest in superior methods that raise the productivity of human labor. With slow productivity growth, the only means of rapid rapid profit growth is driving down wages and benefits of workers and or further reducing corporate taxation. So what this all means is that we can't put an end to socialism for the rich simply by weeding out corrupt politicians or even by electing a few more Democrats, because socialism for the rich, so to speak, is a fundamental component of our economic system. At the end of the day, if capitalists are not reinvesting their profits in the economy and in society, and if no amount of further tax cutting or deregulation can convince them to do so, the solution for kickstarting the economy The solution for kickstarting the economic growth that everybody wants so much clearly has to be public investment. To quote David Kotz again, the best future path for working people in the United States would be some version of green social democracy. 
Socialism is not on the political agenda at this time. However, a period of green social democracy has the potential to at least slow global warming to stave off the danger of disastrous global climate change. It would also bring significant improvements for working people, young people, people of color, and other popular constituencies. So in other words, we know that public goods like single-payer healthcare, free childcare, paid leave for parents, and free higher education all stand to make life better for the vast majority of Americans, particularly during and after economic downturns like the Great Recession and the pandemic. But Kotz also points out that strong public investment doesn't just give working people more resources and more say over their lives. As we know from the post-war era, it can also bring about the kind of balanced growth of wages and profits that neoliberalism is now incapable of producing. Which is all to say that green social democracy might even be good for the economy. All right. So on the subject of green social democracy, I think this is a good time to bring out uh, our guest, Lee Phillips, who, as I mentioned before, is a science writer. He's also a contributor to, contributor to Jacobin and the author of the books Austerity, Ecology and the Collapsed Porn Addicts. And he's the co-author of the book The People's Republic of Walmart. Uh, Lee, good to see you. Hey, Jen. Good to see you, too. All right. So I had kind of given a preview of your Breakthrough Institute piece at the top of the show. Right. Uh, you wrote an article called Blue Collars, Green Jobs. When I read it, I kind of thought of it as like a tough love letter to what you call the climate left, right? And I, I want to start with that term, actually, the climate left, because in your piece, you are very clear that you count yourself among this group, right? Although, yeah, as you absolutely. say, you have disagreements, and we're going to sort of pull some of those apart in a minute. Um, but just to, just to kick off, what is the climate left? Um, and, and maybe a related question is, we've been hearing a lot about eco-socialism in the last couple of years, I think. Um, I'm not actually sure how long the term has been around, but I, for my, for my own part, have been hearing it more and more. Um, so, so what is kind of this new climate movement, I guess? I mean, I suppose the climate left would be those people um, who are concerned about climate change um, and associated uh, biocrises like biodiversity loss, uh, nitrogen pollution, so you name it, um, but that um, also have a, a critique of capitalism to some extent, mm -hmm. uh, whether that is sort of like liberal left through to social demo democratic or further afield to a sort of more a, a democratic socialism or even uh, or anarchism, that, that sort of category of people, as opposed to simply the sort of centrists or conservatives who might be concerned about climate change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yes. pretty expensive. It's, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that, uh, that element of kind of the critique of capitalism um, is what I want to sort of zero in on, right? Because at least, you know, in, in my kind of understanding, um, uh, much of the climate left is very explicitly pro-labor or pro-working class. So, some examples are, you know, the Sunrise Movement has very openly and vocally supported the PRO Act. Um, even the Green New Deal, you know, is at its heart a public jobs and infrastructure program, which was ostensibly written with the interests of working people in mind. Um, and uh, as you just said, you know, lots of activists who are part of the climate left has sort of identified capitalism as the root cause of environmental destruction. So there does seem to be in some ways, um, at least to my understanding, a move away from some of the like like lifestyle environmentalism of, you know, the 90s where, you know, you were told to like turn off lights and, you know, buy green and so forth. And now there does seem to be a, a foregrounded critique of capitalism. But what I wanted to get into with you is, um, so the climate left is, you know, pro-labor, right? 
But at the same time, as your piece points out, there are still so many instances in which the climate left seems to run up against a large segment of the labor movement itself, namely the building trades. So the question, I guess, is what's going on here? Well, I mean, fundamentally, I think the the issue here is that uh, despite the expressions of uh, solidarity for uh, for labor, for for work, for the working class and working class communities, uh, by many people on the climate left, um, it is a projection of uh, sort of. I, let me put it another way: it's for the climate left. Sorry, it's for uh, it's for labor. It's mm-hmm. for the working class. Uh, or it's intended that way, but it's not by the working class. It's mm-hmm. not of the working class. That it, so, um, I mean, one of the the, the sort of the, the things that we can see in this is that, and I refer to this in, in in my article, is that you know in 2019 there were a series of protests by building trades unions um, in California against uh, an LA version, the Los Angeles version of uh, the Green New Deal. And then later on during the, uh, the Democratic convention there, uh, there was a large protest that they, by, again, by Bill and Trades Unions, um, uh, that they called a sort of blue collar revolution to, mm. that was against the Green New Deal. Uh, Richard Trump, the late um, uh, former president of the, of the AFL-CIO, uh, the largest uh, trade union central in in the United States. Um, you know, he he was quite critical of the the, uh, the Green New Deal as as written or as proposed, uh, saying that you know there uh, uh, labor is the House of Labor is absolutely in favor of something along these lines, even a Green New Deal. But as it has been proposed, um, labor will not put up with the loss of jobs or attacks on um, working class communities. Um, and you know, it's not just in um, uh, in the United States, in France, the CGT, the uh, uh, the the, um, the main sort of left wing trade union there that's historically associated with the Communist Party, has been very critical of of the left's opposition to nuclear power mm-hmm. and the clean transition. Same, same with the GMB, one of the largest trade unions in the UK. The Australian Workers Union has taken a similar position, critical of the climate left for for its opposition to nuclear power. Um, and uh, even you know Sarah Nelson, the, uh, the the great militant head of the Association of Flight Attendants, um, while she supports a Green New Deal and her organization has actually even formally endorsed a Green New Deal, she's also actually very critical of suggestions by those on the green left that we need to get rid of aviation Mm -hmm. or even or just simply reduce aviation and instead is supported and in fact you know there was one interview with her where she actually laughed at the very idea (laughs) that there will be some sort of reduction in in aviation and that what we need instead is some sort of industrial policy economic planning along the lines of what i was talking about in in my book with Michal Rosborski of People's Republic of Walmart, mm-hmm. to shepherd um, the uh, the development of uh, synthetic clean fuels that are alternatives to uh, to the fossil fuels that are used for for, for jet fuel. Um, so there's um, yeah, so there's 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 a lot of um, sort of disagreement and very public disagreement between uh, the climate left um, and the House of Labour. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the way that this has been sort of described in the media, I mean, there's been a lot of articles about this, mainly in 2019. But, you know, every now and then you see similar sort of things pop up. Um, and uh, the way that the media has largely described this uh, is as a sort of like a battle between, you know, blue collar, uh, hard hats, right. uh, uh, hippie punching, <laughs> the feet coastal elites. And that's not really what's going on here. 
Um, and I can talk about a little bit more about that in a second, but I'm sure I've talked too much already. No, no. I, I mean, that, you know, that actually leads very well into what I wanted to kind of get into next, which is the stakes of this kind of divide, right? So um, I actually want to pull up a series of tweets that uh, I, I think are interesting because they come from a progressive NGO staffer who has worked both in the labor movement and in the climate movement. Um, so this staffer wrote, New York climate left people often chase a mirage, real labor union support. I say this as an extremely pro-union person who spent a decade at a mid to high level working for a strong progressive union, CWA, in New York. It's not going to happen. Don't chase a mirage. The issue is that labor's house is burning down. It's an extraordinarily difficult challenge to stay alive when a powerful quicksand is steadily sucking you down. In that context, no union is going to devote any truly substantial measure of its power to advance climate action. Rather than try to win over labor, the, ma the major challenge is preventing some unions from attacking and undermining climate action in tandem with their employers. If you want to think this through, I can't recommend enough talking to people who work for or recently worked for a union. Um, and the reason why I wanted to kind of bring up this sentiment is because uh, this person seems to be making a strategic argument, right? Like they're saying that labor is in decline, kind of on the back foot. And I don't think either of us would disagree with that. Um, but does it then follow that the climate movement does not need unions? Well, no. I mean, one, first of all, uh, the labor movement is, I mean, the reason why that socialists and social democrats put such an emphasis on the importance of, of trade unions and working people is not because there's any sort of like special sort of uh, pity or there's particularly more oppressed than other people or anything right. like that. It's their role in society that mm -hmm. is really essential that no other group of people in society has the ability to withdraw their labor, uh, to go on strike, uh, to uh, to uh, to halt production to actually threaten the profits of of elites. So it is much 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 more powerful as a weapon um, to uh, to transform society to change things in society than any set of protests, any set of leafleting, um, any 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 blockades, any any sort of action that activists do on their own. Um, as powerful as that can be, sometimes. Um, it, it pales in comparison to the uh, to the power of labor uh, to withdraw their labor. So if we want something to happen, we absolutely have to make sure that labor is on board. But I, there's a sort of problem with that tweet there that the the author of it uh, is basically pres uh, assuming that um, that labor's critique of the Green New Deal or labor's positions on climate change isn't progressive or mm -hmm. isn't uh, supportive of deep decarbonization. This is actually incorrect. Um, if you look at the, uh, if you move beyond the sort of uh, media narrative about the conflict between the climate left and, and the House of Labor, uh, you find that all of these organizations uh, there's a, there are putting forward proposals that are where they're saying we, we are open to a Green New Deal or um, sort of economic planning or industrial policy built out of, of, of infrastructure. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are a series of different demands that labor has. Um, mm -hmm. Three main things. One is they absolute that the climate left absolutely has to begin dropping its opposition to a range of technologies that really are necessary for uh, for the clean transition, including nuclear uh, power, uh, which is clean and available twenty four seven, carbon capture and storage, um, and even sort of the idea that we need to shut off all um, fossil fuel combustion right now. Mm -hmm. Society would fall apart if we did that. So we have to plan it very, very carefully, ensuring that there's a just transition for the communities involved. Mm -hmm. um, that 
the second that um, the climate left activists have to speak to trade unions and working class people before they come up with these plans, not yep. after, and then tell them about it. And this is mm-hmm. you know, one of Trump, uh, Richard Trumpka's main critiques was this wasn't nobody ever really talked to us about this before right. the, the, the plans were developed. And, um, and and finally, that they really, really want a, a firm commitment from the climate left to be uh, to fighting, be fighting alongside unions and yep. working people, um, especially energy sector uh, uh, workers uh, to defend and enhance uh, their wages, their conditions, their pensions and benefits. And they just really haven't been there with respect to some of the big fights that sort of the United Mine Workers uh, have been um, fighting over pensions in the last uh, few years. Mm-hmm. And also they just absolutely have not. Not merely uh, not supported um, worker energy sector workers who work at nuclear power plants to defend those uh, really essential parts of of a clean grid. Um, they've actually been participating with NG- green NGOs to fight for the shuttering of those those plants. So it's not it's really isn't the case that um, you've got these uh, trade union trade unions over here who are like maybe a little bit more conservative and we've got to win them to a more progressive right. position no 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 they're much more progressive than the on um, climate change than the climate left is yeah i mean that was at least for me a really interesting and useful part of your article that you you know point out that seemingly unbeknownst to many environmental activists, unions, as you just said, have actually been trying to produce and advance their own climate solutions like for decades, basically. Um, So can you say a little bit more about what some of those solutions look like? You alluded to it a little bit, um, but then maybe also like, why, why hasn't anybody been listening? Fundamentally, there are some real, why this is happening is that there's some real um, parallels between the questions around um, uh, climate change, biodiversity loss, um, and uh, the so the progressive left's positions on these, and the progressive left's positions with respect to identity politics. That is to say that there's a um, uh, the left is no longer the, at the moment very representative of the class as a whole. It's not to say that um, the left isn't made up of workers. It is, but very particular kinds of workers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the term professional managerial class is bandied around and I, you know, I get some of the critiques of that because it isn't it's not very well theorized. But that sort of idea that um, the, um, the the left at the moment in the United States and Britain and Canada and Western Europe is very, very sort of more. Um, uh, there's a lot of grad students and academics and uh, journalists like myself. And there's nothing wrong with any of these people, but we just don't the left just doesn't look like what the, the entirety of the, uh, the working class looks like. And so that means that, um, uh, that the whole series of, uh, sort of solutions for, for climate change are just not really going to be thought about. Mm-hmm. Whereas these, um, uh, the building trades unions, they mm-hmm. work uh, day in, day out building things, um, mm-hmm. uh, putting, uh, developing um, HVAC systems, um, and the energy sector workers know about how the, the grid works better than anybody does, even the, 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 the sort of energy systems modelers in academia. I mean, there's uh, there's this incredible wealth of uh, formal, both formal and tacit knowledge about energy systems, industrial uh, systems, uh, transport systems, uh, agriculture that lives in the in the minds and bodies of 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 of, of these of these workers, of industrial workers. And if we don't have those people in our movement, or we don't have many of them in our movement, then um, the the sort of 
so the sets of solutions that uh, NGOs and academics come up with and activists and journalists um, may not be very viable. Mm-hmm. Um, so a great example of this would be, you know, this, this, the, the, uh, the situation with, where we have um, activist groups ca- like uh, Plain Stupid or Stay Grounded mm-hmm. and, and uh, who are campaigning against aviation or um, the building of, um, uh, of new airports or trying to get people to fly less or just not fly at all. Right. Um, Extinction Rebellion has had protests outside Heathrow Airport in the UK. Um, Greta Thunberg, rather than flying um, to, uh, uh, to the United States for, for a climate protest, she um, uh, got in a, a, a yacht, a racing yacht owned right, by right. The, uh, the Monaco royal family in order to apparently avoid the, uh, the climate, the, the carbon emissions of, of flying there. Now, um, but if you speak to somebody like Sarah Nelson, um, uh, she's going to be saying things like, well, why are you throwing under the bus the uh, the flight attendants, the, mm-hmm. the air traffic control workers, the ground staff, the pilots, all of which depend on this, uh, this, uh, this, this means of transport. And the, um, you're turning them into, into an enemy uh, with respect to climate change instead of an ally that is probably the most important ally you can have in the fight to make the, uh, the large airlines pay uh, for um, uh, the clean transition, to pay for um, um, industrial, uh, the, the development of, of, of clean fuels mm-hmm. um, and to support policies like in, industrial policy that will take uh, clean fuels from sort of lab bench through to commercialization. I, I, I want to focus on the transition part now, the so-called just transition, right? Um, because you had mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, part of the reason why there is sometimes this friction or tension between, uh, you know, the labor movement and the climate left uh, is because green jobs are presently not very good jobs. So yeah. so can you talk a little bit about why green jobs are not good jobs right now? And then maybe as a follow up, like, how can they be made good? Well, it depends what we're talking about. Yeah. One of the things that uh, labor is very concerned about is that a number of the jobs with respect to uh, variable renewables, um, particularly solar and onshore wind, are very uh, transient. They're very low paid. They're unskilled. You're slapping mm-hmm. solar panels on roofs or racks. Um, uh, there are, you know, there's there's no parking lot outside a um, uh, a, uh, a solar farm the way that there is outside a coal plant or a nuclear power plant. And all of this means that it's very, very hard for uh, unions to organize. Uh, unions uh, can organize and they should be organizing, but we also have to understand that a union isn't a magic wand either mm-hmm. that can turn a $16 an hour unskilled job into a $100,000 a year family supporting income. Right. Um, and but there are lots of parts of the clean transition, like nuclear power, offshore wind, which is more uh, reliable, um, um, uh, carbon capture and storage. You know, if you're a pipe fitter, it doesn't really matter whether you're um, uh, building out a pipeline for natural gas or, or petroleum or you're building out a pipeline for uh, clean, carbon neutral, synthetic uh, natural gas or synthetic um uh, jet fuel or synthetic um, uh, petroleum, which may be necessary for a number of different sectors that are really, really hard to electrify. Avia- long haul aviation is basically you can't you can't stick a battery 
on a, on a, on a uh, long haul flight uh, because it's simply too heavy. The plane can't get off the ground. Similarly with long haul uh, shipping, um, small ferries you can electrify, but going right across the Pacific Ocean, you know, there's no recharging stations in the middle of the, uh, the Pacific. Um, and so for, for these reasons, we probably will continue to need some sort of fuels. We have to make sure that they're clean fuels. And all of the jobs that create that support those sorts of things, if we have a much greater proportion um, of, of nuclear power, if we have a greater proportion of reliable uh, clean electricity, if we... Um, if we are using some of these technologies like carbon capture and storage, negative emissions technologies, um, and even fracking for hydraulic fracturing for advanced geothermal, uh, these are it's much easier for for uh, for workers in those sector in the fossil sector to see themselves in the, uh, uh, having good jobs in, the, in a, in a de- completely decarbonized economy. Their communities are preserved. Uh, we can swap out, um, 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 uh, you know. Uh, Boilers and, and coal plants and, and put in uh, nu- advanced nuclear power, uh, nuclear reactors. Mm-hmm. Um, and those communities are protected. Uh, those jobs are protected. They're, uh, they're highly skilled, which means they're going to be highly paid. They're much more easily to unionize. Um, so that's so. And it all, it's not just about um, uh, labor. It is also this will do a better job, a faster job of decarbonizing the economy than a dependence only upon or primarily upon variable renewables like wind and solar uh, that uh, can only produce electricity when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. So I think you've made a pretty compelling case uh, that, you know, the tension that kind of arises between climate movements and labor movements isn't just a function of like the fact that unions are somehow like conservative or reactionary or they're just like digging their heels in. I think that you have yeah. made a, a very strong case for that. But I'm wondering if you if you think that there's any um, there's any instance in which the climate left could or should try to steer unions in a different direction? Or is it just is it just that the left should always be following the lead of the unions? So <clears throat> certainly the argument that I'm making uh, critiquing the idea from the climate left that the reason why Labor is taking these positions or is more critical, has been more critical of the Green New Deal, um, is a result of business unionism or conservative unionism mm-hmm. uh, is incorrect. I'm like, I think yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. It's not at the same time. At the same time, I'm not absolutely not saying that um, uh, the trade union positions are practically perfect in every way, like Mary right. Poppins. Um, the, 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 the one should never critique them. Um, but just that. Um, we need to be a lot more. We need to realize that the bulk of the critiques that the House of Labor has had of the climate left are actually completely legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say. Sorry, one thing I should add is that there's lots of examples where things are working. Um, I would say where um, so, uh, uh, trade unionists and, and cl- uh, pro nuclear climate activists were very successful in uh, defending. Um, uh, nuclear power in Illinois and developing um, uh, climate policies there that that labor absolutely has embraced. Uh, Maine has done a great uh, activist in Maine actually went to uh, to labor first before developing their uh, their green New, their state level uh, green New Deal policy, which has actually been passed. One of the things that uh, was developed there was as a result of this, there's much greater emphasis on the need for apprenticeships. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, um, you know, uh, sort of, 
so more middle class uh, climate activists, that's not necessarily something there that's going to be front of mind. So just right. again, there's this enormous body of knowledge that exists within uh, within the working class, and let's let's take advantage of that where mm-hmm. it's happening. Um, we're getting, we're seeing Green New Deal's pass. We're seeing uh, Labour mm. getting on board with this stuff. Um, in Hawaii, there's a really, really interesting and innovative um, uh, effort there on the part of a number of um, uh, hospitality workers who've been very engaged in uh, some really bitter strikes and struggles over um, uh, labour conditions in in the hospitality sector, and are you know in un- uh, the union unite here. And you know they're they're working with uh, with climate scientists and engineers at uh, the, um, uh, the University of Hawaii to develop uh, to try to develop a workers cooperative uh, factory that produces exactly the clean um, uh, jet fuel that I was talking about a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. and are looking for uh, for government support for that. Uh, that's really really exciting. I think that's really interesting. It also speaks to I mean I should have mentioned this earlier. It was you know if the, the proposal from the climate left is that there's not going to be any avi- any aviation anymore, any flights mm-hmm. anymore. Well, what happens to the entire economy of, of Hawaii? What about right. Guam? What about Puerto Rico? Um, you're just writing uh, the, these 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 parts of the United States off that happen to be on islands um, and you know very racialized communities, uh, it, uh, um, you know deep histories of colonialism, mm-hmm. and so that just ignoring of of those communities. To my mind, I mean that just sounds like sort of neo-colonialism to me, but really at the end of the day, what it is is that um, the climate left just isn't representative enough of the entirety of the working class. If we were much more uh, representative of the entirety and breadth and diversity of the working class, um, these ideas like ban, ban flying just would never come up. Right. Uh, I think on that note, this will be my last question for you. And I want to circle back to kind of what we kicked off with uh, when when I asked you about sort of eco-socialism and uh, the rise of, you know, this new climate left. Because something that I was trying to get at is, uh, as I said before, um, I do feel like the kind of uh, framework of eco-socialism or like even a Green New Deal is in many ways a departure from the more like lifestyle centered environmentalism of days of old. Uh, You know, I I think that we hear more, at least on the climate left, about uh, fighting capitalism than we do like, you know, don't use straws or whatever. Um, But that said, you have been bringing up these other examples of, you know, people who want to like ban aviation or want to ground all planes Mm -hmm. or even reduce aviation. So I'm wondering, um, to what extent have we really moved past this kind of like lifestyle politics? or like consumer focused politics um how much of that do you think is still pervading pervading or like i don't know like infecting i guess the green new deal framework and then maybe a follow-up to that is does it really matter all that much or do we need some sort of is it is it a bad thing to have kind of uh eye to lifestyle changes as well as you know obviously fighting uh the sort of larger problem of capitalism I mean, I mean, if people want to, um, on their own, um, um, do some some actions to, uh, you know, um, to limit their climate impact. I mean, I, sure, fill your boots, but it, right. unfortunately, a lot of these uh, lifestyle uh, these calls, these you know, banning of of uh, of straws um, or you know, buying local food, mm-hmm. um, eating organic. I mean, actually, these things are either have very little to no impact with respect to uh, emissions reduction, um, or in some cases are actually counterproductive. So local 
uh, food production is much more land extensive. The, the single biggest source of emissions within uh, from from ag- from agriculture is land use change. So um, uh, if everybody sh- everybody in the world shifted to local organic uh, agriculture, it would be much. We'd use a lot lot more land to produce the same amount of food, um, which would increase emissions. It wouldn't reduce it. Uh, so um, and. F- to some extent, some of these individual choices are, they're okay, they're fine. Other ones, they're just, they're, they're bananas. They actually don't work and they're, they're the counterproductive. So it's very good that we have, we're beginning to see a shift towards a more, a more of a critique, a systemic or a structural critique. <clears throat> At the same time, the fundamental problem that we face with capitalism with respect to climate change, biodiversity loss, whatever sort of environmental issue we're talking about, is not um, um, economic growth. Um, uh, or industry or modernity, mm-hmm. the problem that we face with respect to climate change uh, and these other issues with respect to uh, with uh, uh, capitalism is that markets, uh, uh, actors within markets continue to have an incentive to keep producing things um, uh, that are profitable, even if even once we've discovered that they're harmful. Uh, so like fossil fuels, for example. Um, and there is no incentive within markets uh, for the production of, say, new infrastructure uh, that we know that we do need that will be beneficial, but isn't profitable or isn't sufficiently profitable or it's too, um, or it's too risky uh, for, for, capitalists, for, for investors to, to invest in. So um, the... Uh, Eco-socialism, unfortunately, I mean, I, I have some problems with the, even with the term because I think socialism is just already that's fine. We we, we don't need to add the eco. It's already the, the all the solutions that we 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 need are already enveloped within socialism. Um, uh, so adding an eco to it suggests that there's something outside of socialism that we mm. need to do, but that's 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 not correct. Um, and um, Oh, where was I going with this? Oh, I, I mean, basically, it's a question of economic planning. It's not a question. We need to be focusing on industrial policy, technology policy, um, build out of infrastructure. Uh, that's the sort of thing that we need, not these eco-socialist critiques of economic growth. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Lee, thank you very much. I want to shout out your piece again. It's Blue Collars, Green Jobs. That appears in the Breakthrough Journal, which I believe is a pretty new publication. Yes. Um, no, it's, it's oh, been it's out been for around. a few okay. years. The, Sorry, the breakthrough. <laughs> but anyway, it's a great piece. So I encourage everybody to check that out. Uh, Lee, thank you again. It was good to see you. Thanks, Jen. Yeah. Good talking to you. All right. So, um, <clears throat> again, please check out that piece. It's great. I, I think I mentioned before, Paul Prescott and I actually shouted it out on a different show. Um, but of course I thought that I should, you know, hear it straight from the source himself. So we had Leon. Um, All right. I think that is pretty much it for today. See you next week. 